0: The final part of Isaiah, or sometimes called third Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 56 to 66, the shortest of these sections we're looking at. You'll notice each one gets shorter and shorter, but a really important one. It's not just kind of something tagged on at the end. Actually, it's a section which kind of ties together, brings together everything else we've looked at in the two previous sections. If you think back a few weeks to uh, the first uh, section of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39, We found that the big theme there is that Israel has failed to live as God wants them to do. They've rebelled against God, and therefore they're going to experience judgment. And God calls them to change the way they're living, to live righteously, and calls them to trust in him for salvation alone. When all these foreign nations are kind of threatening them, God says, you've got to trust in me alone uh, to be rescued. And then in the next section, we saw that the time had moved on a bit. Chapters 40 to 55 that had happened Judah had been judged had been taken off into exile but Isaiah comes and speaks words of comfort of reassurance to them he talks about this servant figure who we explored the last time who comes and takes upon himself that vocation that Israel had failed to live out he comes and he deals with the nation's failure he says that the exile will be reversed and that sin issue which kind of underlies all the problems is going to be dealt with And that's basically exactly what happens. Just as Isaiah prophesied, God brought the people back to their land. That thing which had never happened in history before actually happened under Cyrus, the uh, ruler of the Persians. But then when they got back to Judah, life wasn't kind of the wonderful thing they were expecting. And it wasn't what Isaiah had talked about. All those great visions of what was to come just didn't really fit uh, what they experienced. They were living basically in a kind of middle time because that return from exile had begun. A good number of people had gone back from Babylon right across, back to um, their land. But actually their enemies were still around. Their enemies still had quite a lot of control uh, over them. And the big issue, the sin issue that underlined it all hadn't been dealt with. And so in this way, they were living in a kind of now and not yet tension. The exile had now been reversed. There was a beginning of God's saving work but there was also a whole load of it which was not yet. It hadn't yet really happened. That means that the situation addressed in these chapters is very much comparable to our situation. We live in that now and not yet between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, where Jesus has won the victory and we get to experience some of that now, but actually we're still waiting for that final consummation when we come into the, uh, the kind of fullness of that. And so our situation and the situation in these chapters is similar. And actually, on a literary level, so on the level of what Isaiah is saying, he's actually speaking directly to our time. Because through the message of the book, he's talking about the time between the work of the servant, who we looked at last week, who is Jesus, and the coming of the new creation, which is exactly the time that we live in. So he's kind of talking both into that post-exile time back in the 500s BC, but he's also talking to us. He's talking to the church age between Jesus' first coming And Jesus' second coming. And when we look at those two sections together we're left with some questions and it's those questions which this last section uh, answers for us and helps us to get our heads around. Because Isaiah 1 to 39 had a big focus on behavior, telling the Israelites, the Judahites, they're doing the wrong things and they need to turn, they need to change the way that they're behaving. But then Isaiah 40 to 55 have this big message about God's salvation by grace. That it's all going to be irrespective, actually, of what people have done. It's not based on what they do. Which kind of leaves that question, well, does the latter replace the former? Is it the case that it no longer matters, actually, how we live? We don't need to listen to chapters 1 to 39 because God has acted in grace. God has saved us in that. Well, Isaiah's answer would be certainly not. Isaiah 56 to 66 explain how we live in the light of what God has done and how that causes us to live out that call to righteousness that comes in the first part of the book. That's one of the ways that these chapters kind of answer some of the big questions you might have from the rest of the book. And another thing about this best part of the book is it's kind of comparable in the book of Isaiah to what the book of Revelation is doing in the New Testament. You see, God's work of uh, salvation, God's work of restoring all things, necessarily contains two parts. There's the work of salvation and redemption, but there's also the work of judgment and condemnation. As well as saving and being merciful, God has to judge and remove and deal with and kind of destroy evil. And what we find in the coming of Christ is you come on a kind of almost a separation with that. You find Jesus coming, and Jesus is coming, bringing the message of salvation. And John says, after that famous verse in John 3:16, he says that Jesus didn't come to judge and condemn the world, but to save the world. And that's the <coughs> primary message of the gospels through the letters. But that doesn't mean that God is not going to deal with the problem of evil, and that God is not going to deal with what the Bible calls the wicked. And when we get to the Book of Revelation, at the end of the New Testament, which talks about the coming or talks about the Church Age and the coming of Jesus, the coming of the new creation we see God then implementing that judgment, which in his mercy he has held back in the time being. And it's a bit like in the second part of Isaiah and the third part, we've got that same division. The second part is focusing on this idea of the mercy of God, the salvation of God coming. But that doesn't mean that God is not going to be just and God is not going to destroy evil. And actually it's this last section which talks about how the end of the age, how everything will be wrapped up how through being merciful and saving, but also judging the wicked and destroying evil, God will kind of complete that picture. And so in that kind of way, one helpful way to think about this is this is quite like reading the book of Revelation, whereas the rest of Isaiah is like reading earlier parts of the New Testament. Let's dive in with a little bit of historical background. And actually, this is the section of Isaiah where historical background is the, uh, in a sense, the less important bit. It's the least historically rooted bit. Which probably supports the idea if you think back that this is written by Isaiah in the 700s BC even though he's now thinking of the 530s BC. Actually if he's getting further and further from his time it makes sense he's going to get less and less specific historically. And so it's the case that though we can get an idea of where this is speaking into the historical background isn't as important here as it is in the earlier sections. But broadly speaking Isaiah is speaking into the time when the Judahites have gone back to their land after the exile, when Cyrus, just as Isaiah said in chapters 44 and 45, has allowed them to go back to um, their city. It talks about um, some of the big concerns of the period. One of the big concerns was what's the place of non Jews, or foreigners in the land at that time. It talks about the temple being restored, about temple worship all of which suggests it must be after the exile, when that stuff has been kind of rebuilt. But having said that, there are times when it talks about the city seemingly still being in destruction. So it might be that it's really right on that central point, just about when Cyrus is sending them back, it's right at the very beginning of the return that he's talking into. And all of that began in about 538 BC. This new ruler comes on the scene, Cyrus, the emperor of the Persians, who as I said before had this very different idea wanted people to be in their lands wanted them to be happy there thinking if they're happy with us they're going to obey us they're not going to rebel against us and so he allows the Judahites to go back to Jerusalem, to Judah he actually even gives them funds from the royal treasury to rebuild the city, rebuild the walls to rebuild their temple he explicitly asked them to start worshipping Yahweh again to pray to and to worship their God but it wasn't all plain sailing when they went back Some of the Israelites and Judahites had just become really comfortable in Babylon and kind of thought this period later, well, why would we go back now? We've got new lives here. They didn't see any need to go back. And when people did go back, what they found was that there was this whole mix of people left in the land because the poorest of the poor of the Judahites had been left in the land when the exile took place. And what the Babylonians did was they carted in people to basically fill the land, you know, to farm it, to make use of it. And so there was this great mixing pot of Uh, ethnicities mixing pot of nations basically which is why this big issue of this period becomes what is the place of people who don't have the Jewish heritage in this new Jerusalem this new community of God's people um, that they're building and often these people who were in the land weren't very favorable to the people being shipped in who were now claiming it was their land and now now wanting to rebuild and to make it their own and if you read the book of Ezra you'll find there's this tension and these letters going back and forth between the people left in the land and the rulers, because they're not happy that the guys have come back and they're trying to rebuild. But despite that opposition, uh, in 5.16, just a little bit later, the temple is completed. But actually, the people who remember the previous temple, the kind of older generation, when they see the foundation stones laid in the ground, they don't rejoice that the temple is being rebuilt, God's coming back to be with his people. They weep. Because they see actually this temple being built is absolutely nothing compared to the glorious temple that Solomon had built. There's all these hints that they are back, but this isn't the kind of wonderful kingdom that Isaiah, for example, had prophesied about. And perhaps even more importantly, when they finally dedicate the temple, pretty much nothing happens. When you read in Exodus about the dedication of the tabernacle, the portable temple, when you read in 1 Kings about the dedication of Solomon's temple, in each time there's this wonderful moment where God comes to dwell in the the temple. The glory of the Lord comes down in a physical, tangible way, a way they can see, a way they experience. And that just doesn't happen in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They've gone back, but this is not the great restoration they've been wanting And part of the reason for that, I guess, and one of the problems of this period is that that whole big sin issue still hadn't been dealt with. The people are back in the land, but they're no more able actually to live God's way than they were before the exile had happened. The really big problem is actually completely still there, which tells us the story is clearly not over. The work of the servant can't actually yet have been done. And so in some ways, when we're reading these chapters, we're actually thinking about two different historical backgrounds. There's the historical background where Isaiah is talking to people who've just returned from exile, talking to them and addressing some of the issues they're living. But as I said, there's also a sense he's talking to our age. He is talking to the time after the servant has done his work and before the new creation, which comes in the end of these chapters. And we kind of need to bear both of those backgrounds, both of those uh, contexts in mind as we read through this section. Any questions or any introductory stuff or historical background for this part of Isaiah? Yeah. So what is God saying to us now Isaiah? So this, let's wait to the end of the session and then we might ask that question. So let's read some of it. In fact, one of the main in the notes, the main bit of today is some exercises. And for every uh, passage, the last question is, what is God saying to us, basically? What are those theological principles and how can we apply it? So if I forget to talk about that at the end, stick their hand back up and we'll kind of address that then because that's the most important question we can ask yeah anyway Potentially, what it definitely confirms is there's deliberate unity. So whether or not it's one author, or whether it's that as each stage gone through, it's been deliberately written to add to and to fit together, it definitely supports unity. And what most scholars say now is not that there are, there's one author, but that the authors were related. There's this kind of Isaiah school, this disciples community who work together. But certainly it's, it's an argument for unity. And once you've got unity, it's then a strong argument for one author. So it's much easier for one author... It's very odd that in biblical studies there are lots of occasions where there are wild theories about groups of people writing texts which just never happens. There are no examples really of unified texts which read with great unity like this does, which are written by multiple groups of people. There's no other examples in literature in the world. Um, I'm almost certain I'm right in saying that. And so it's one of the oddities of biblical scholarship that we think it makes sense to have whole groups of people writing great unified works when that just doesn't seem to Happen, so I'm saying yes. I guess it's a very good argument for yeah for single authorship. Yeah, Tom. Um,
1: I, I'm absolutely sure the dedication of the temple is nothing like the one in the mm. There does seem to be a real strand of, kind of God's guidance, God's um, protection mm. against the opposition for this kind of very hard work. of yeah. the building. That's a really good point. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't and, want and to. Sorry. They gathered them together to read the law. Yeah. I know it kind of you know, that they lost the enthusiasm yeah. and sort of had to be pulled back. But was something going on. That was you're, you're definitely right, yeah.
0: There was, I think there were many repentant hearts, many hearts who wanted it. Yeah, exactly the same. Like Ezra reads the law and interprets it so it helps them to apply it. And there's no doubt, yeah, God's hand was upon them. I and mean, even if you read the accounts in Ezra about the building of the temple, it talks about all these opposition. But it says, but they triumph through the hand of their God and the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, I think it is. So you're absolutely right, Yes, yeah, so, no, so I wouldn't want to overplay the idea that God had abandoned them or anything like that. It. it wasn't that. But there's almost this deliberate sense, as there is in the whole of the Old Testament story, to say it's not finished. So you're meant to get to the end of the Old Testament and think there needs to be something else happening. This is kind of an unfinished story. Um, but that's a helpful balance. Probably I stressed that too much. It's helpful, Tom, thank you. There's, God doesn't abandon his people. God is still doing good there, even though he's saying to us there's even better to come. There's kind of still work to be done. Let's um, think about the structure of this material. This is quite an interesting bit. If we think back to the first section of Isaiah 1 to 39, it's primarily kind of organised by theme. It's a thematic piece around those whole things of living the right way, of trusting in God for salvation. There's some movement because we start in the reign of Ahaz and then we come to the reign of Hezekiah, who comes next. But some of the material in those chapters could go in pretty much any order. And then we come to chapters 40 to 55, and as we probably saw last time by going through the servant songs, there's this definite progression, you journey through. There's those two halves, when it's talking about the failure of Israel, then the work of the servant who succeeds where Israel fails, and there's a sense in those chapters that you are walking forward, tracing the story, tracing the progress. When we get to this final section, 56 to 66, we find something quite different. We find what scholars like to call a chiastic structure. A chiastic structure is basically a pyramid. It's where you have parallel levels, which are working up, so you'll be saying the same thing or around the same theme, working up, getting closer together into the central point, which is more easily illustrated kind of by sight than by words. You can see the example there. You have level A, which tells you about the first point or the first theme, and you move on to the second point or the second theme, and then you reach the kind of pinnacle. You reach the top of the pyramid, and then you start working back down. You repeat the second theme, and then you repeat the first theme, and you've created this kind of pyramid um, structure. And it seems that that is what is going on in Isaiah fifty-six to sixty-six. Again, I'll talk to this, but it's much easier to see than it is to hear. So, worth going kind of looking at your notes. It starts first by talking about worshippers coming and joining God's people, worshippers from other nations. And then there's quite a substantial section in which he's talking about um, talking to the faithless, the people who are rejecting God, not living his way, but then reassuring those who are living his way. And that's where he focuses a lot on how do we actually live as God's people. And we can take another step and there's a short prayer. There, the focus being confession. Another step and there's a passage about God acting as the warrior king to punish the wicked. And then the middle one, which doesn't have a partner, it stands at the pinnacle of the pyramid. Is where there's this wonderful vision, the eschatological hope, the end-time hope of restoration of God's place, this international kingdom under God's rule, under Yahweh's rule. That's kind of the top. And then we start journeying back down and doing the same thing in reverse. So we have another passage about a warrior king punishing the wicked. Another step, we have another prayer. Not so much confession this time, but a cry for mercy. Another step back, there's more stuff, speaking to the faithless and destroying the faithful, more stuff about how to live God's way. And then the final section parallels the very first section where it's talking about worshipers coming from other nations with also some added stuff there about the judgment on the wicked. And you can see, even with that last level, you can see the parallels aren't always identical. Sometimes they're variations on a theme. Sometimes it's the same theme, but there's an added element kind of uh, added into it there. And sometimes you get little bits which don't quite fit into that structure. But I think there is very good reason to think that as you look at the content of these chapters, they're built to have that sense of climax right in the middle there. And if that's the case, it should lead us to ask the question, why? Why would an author go to all the effort of very carefully crafting to make that kind of pyramid structure? And I think there are two reasons and two special things that a chiasm does. The first one is it places emphasis on the central point. Because as you're kind of walking up the steps, you're getting closer and closer to the top of the pyramid. The thing at the top of the pyramid is the one, the only one which stands there on its own. It doesn't have a partner. And there's this sense of emphasis. You've reached the pinnacle. You've reached the thing that it's all working up to. And so that's what section E on the outline I've given you would do. At the pinnacle of the pyramid in these chapters, uh, chapters 60 to 62, is all about what God is going to do. It's all just kind of time or lots and lots of promises about the restoration that God is going to work, the salvation he's going to bring, all that he's going to do is bringing his people and the nations together to live, to recognise his glory, to worship him. It's placed as the kind of um, most prominent part. The end of the story is given that place of emphasis, that most prominent part. That's one reason he uses this structure. But of course, the thing about a chiastic structure is the main emphasis, that main pinnacle, doesn't come as the last thing you read. Because you read up to it, and then you kind of read down to it. You actually end somewhere else. And what that does is it suggests to us that the story is not yet finished. The story is still going somewhere else. It's still ongoing, and there's something else important to be said. Because if chapter 16, 62, all this wonderful stuff about the salvation that God is going to work have been placed at the very end of the book, We and Isaiah's original readers might kind of read it and think, well, that's okay then. God's right about to do this thing. He's going to restore it all. We don't have to worry about much. All that stuff he said about, you know, living righteously, we don't need to think about that. That's clearly not relevant because the end of the story is this. God's just about to do this. But that's not how Isaiah leaves us. He actually walks us back down. He kind of earths us, grounds us almost, as it were, from that glorious vision, walks us back down to the reality of how we should live this out and actually ultimately ends on the reality of a stark challenge to the reader. We'll look at it at the end of this session where there are two options. There's this um, kind of portrayal of the eternal destiny of the repentant and the eternal destiny of the unrepentant and the wicked. He doesn't want to leave us with a kind of a false understanding. He walks us back down to earth us, to ground us. And that's what this structure allows him to do. To say this is the glorious pinnacle, but don't forget that this is the reality at the moment and that's how you need to respond as what we'll do tonight is primarily through looking at some of the passages ourselves we're going to look at those levels we're going to look at the pinnacle and then we'll look at that very last session and see well, what is it or the section and see what is it that isaiah wants to leave us with and how does he want us to uh, kind of change and to act in response any questions on structure yeah um uh, we, oh, I will ask, I'm going, sorry, I can't come back to you Dave, I'll ask you that later. One of the passages we're going to look at is one of those. So when a group looks at that passage, that's one of the key questions to ask. Who is the warrior king who does this work? So again, remind me if I don't bring that up later. So was King David before or after Isaiah? King David's before. So King David's about 1000 BC. So a... And Isaiah's, no, so it's not David. Isaiah's about 700 BC, about 300 years later. Let's just quickly look at the opening before we dive into some of the passages in our groups. You might remember that in each of the sections we looked at, the opening is very important. It's a very carefully crafted book, and Isaiah uses these openings to talk to us and kind of introduce to us what's going to happen. And just as each section has got shorter, each opening has got shorter. So this time, we're actually right down just to a couple of verses. But what these very first two verses of this section do is show us how the themes of the two previous sections joined together how they come they work together and how then we kind of live them out now so God calls on his people at the beginning of this section to keep justice and to do righteousness he starts with the stuff they should be doing and if you think back to the prologue of Isaiah we did some exercises on there is that song of God sings about his vineyard the vineyard he plants and he wants to produce good fruit but actually just produces wild grapes and at the end of that, we're told that what God was looking for was justice, but behold, bloodshed. He's looking for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This section starts with those words, justice and righteousness. He's trying to make us remember all this stuff about righteous living from the first part of the book. He's reminder that what he's looking for hasn't changed. And the idea of justice is kind of broader than our English idea of justice. It means usually it's about authority, about the right and positive use of authority. And the word righteousness tends to be more about relationships. It's about how people and communities, I guess, kind of relate to each other. And it's about having the right, doing the right thing in relation to other people. He calls them to keep justice, to do righteousness, and then explains why that is. He says, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. That's the theme of the second part of Isaiah. The salvation is just about to come. Deliverance is just about to come through the servant. So Isaiah is saying, don't think that all the stuff in the first bit is negated by the second bit. He's saying because of the second bit, you need to live out all the stuff in the first bit. Right living flows as the response to the salvation that comes through the servant. We live out the call of Isaiah 1 to 39 in recognition of the promises of 40 to 55. And it's interesting that when he talks about, God talks about my deliverance that's about to be revealed, that's actually the same word, zedekah, that's used of doing righteousness. God's saying that our living out righteousness is based on and is a response to him is because of the nearing, the coming close of his righteousness through the salvation that he's going to work. And so the idea isn't that we earn God's salvation by doing these right things, but that we choose to do the right thing in order to live in uh, the salvation that God is going to bring. It's about living in line with what makes sense with what he's going to do. And that's very much close to our situation. There's a parallel here to we do. We don't do uh, things to earn salvation. We don't live God's way for that reason, but we're called to live in light of the salvation that we know is coming. That's kind of the message of the Sermon on the Mount, really. Jesus is saying you live in light of this new kingdom that's coming, the new salvation. You live as citizens of that kingdom rather than citizens as you would here. And then the second verse of this opening further explains this. Further explains, why should we live out righteousness, live out justice? He says it's because such people will be blessed. He doesn't say notice, such people will be accounted righteous or such people will receive salvation. He says such people will be blessed, which in biblical terms, it's very hard to explain. It kind of means happy, it means favoured, it means fortunate. The idea isn't earning salvation, but the truth is, as it says throughout the Bible, that when we are obedient to God, God blesses us in that. Obedience doesn't earn anything, but God blesses those who are obedient to us, to Him. As you can see how just in those first two verses, Isaiah has gone, here's the theme of the first section, here's the theme of the second section, and here's how they to go together. And now he's going to take the rest of the levels of that pyramid to explain that to us. And so what I'm going to give you a chance to do now in your groups is to look at some of the passages from levels A to D, so that's right up until just before the middle section of that pyramid and to explore what is the message of these chapters. For each one, I've given just a bullet point of introduction and some questions to kind of guide you through. So if we just share them out to make sure that everyone, everyone is covered, could I give, what have we got? Can I give you guys down here Isaiah 56? That'd be okay, the first one. And if you ladies in the middle want to do Isaiah 58. And guys there, why don't you do uh, 59 and 63, two shorter bits. And the middle group here, if you do sixty-five, step to sixty-five, and guys at the back, you are free to choose whichever one takes your interest. We've got a good chunk of time to do this, so give you ten to fifteen minutes, really wrestle with it together, and then we'll come together and we'll see what we found. Okay, so we'll now kind of come together, we'll share a bit of what we found so the other groups can benefit. And we're going to actually work our way up, working through the levels. So we're starting on the very first passage within this section, the first of on level age, I think it was you guys over here, Paul's looking very excited. So this is one of the passages where God is talking about the fact that um, non-Jews are going to be able to come into his people, which mirrors a similar passage at the end of it. Um, we won't go through all the questions, but we kind of want to summarise these things a bit, but Did he talk about why might it be that foreigners might think they're going to be rejected? So, God here says, Let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Why might they have thought that? Why might they have said that?
1: Did they think
0: they might be under a curse or something? Yeah. Not a specifically, maybe. Did you look up any of those references? Yeah. And did you find a bit of a mixed message? Do yeah. so you find times when it said that... Um, I'll them up. Times when it said that non-Jews can't come in, or people from different nations can't come into the congregation of the Lord. But then times when it says, if actually the foreigner who's among you wants to celebrate the Passover with you, they can. The detail comes in, or whether the detail is really important. So... So this is talking about eunuchs and talking about other nations where it says they, can't, they shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. To enter the assembly of the Lord was to come and to be part of the people of God who would go, in, uh, go into the kind of temple courts who would be involved in all of that stuff. And so what the Old Testament says is that some nations, people of some nations and people with physical defects such as eunuchs who's addressing here can't do that. But they can live with the people, they can partake for example in the Passover. So basically there were some levels of things that some nations couldn't be involved with. So there were every reason for some foreigners to say, well, actually, surely the Lord's going to reject me because he said back there that actually we can't be a part of the assembly, which is that kind of core group of the people, which is why there was this this kind of ambiguous message in a sense. But what's the wonderful promise given to foreigners and to eunuchs in this passage? That
1: they can can, um, come into the temple
0: to this, be blessed in our worship and our Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really kind of one of the things, I will give my ha- uh, this is talking to eunuchs, I will give my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They shall not be cut off. Huge promises. And what about, did you pick out any theological principles from this promise that actually people who previously might be excluded from that congregation of God are now going to be welcomed in? What are the theological principles and then how can we apply them today? We slightly run right Oh, okay. But we, uh, we thought it fitted a bit with
1: the living God's way, a bit like Isaiah 1.39 sort of, is mm. or something, mm. that they were fulfilling the law and living God's way and sacrificing
0: and serving for the Sabbath. Yes, sir, watch and watch and watch. Yeah, that's a good point. So one of the things it says is it talks about these people, if they kind of basically uh, integrate to the ways of the people of God, if they do the right things they show that heart of commitment. So he's kind of using old covenant, covenant language, ways of thinking, keeping the Sabbath, doing the sacrifices and such like, to talk about the idea of heart repentance, which shows a choice to walk towards God's way to accept his salvation rather than a choice to live in rejection against him. In a sense, I think the key theological principle here is the fact that God is saying that this new kingdom is going to welcome all people. There is no people group, there is no physical defect, there is nothing which can exclude you actually if you turn your heart to God. One of the great messages of Isaiah is this, uh, this kind of widening of division. There's this international kingdom that's going to come. There's that message to the servant in the stuff we did last time. It's too small a thing for you just to be a light to bring light to my people. You're going to be a light to the nations. He said it's a it's a kind of big scale thing. Great, thank you guys. Um, Isaac, uh, what do you guys do at the back By the way, just so I know to come to you at the right time. What passage did you do? Oh, anything to add? Sorry, right. I should have come to you. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant, yeah. I was wondering, would it have been a shock to the of I think so. Yeah. I think absolutely would. I mean when you read through Ezra Nehemiah, one of the big issues, as I mentioned, is is the position of, of non Jews in the land. There's a lot of with the New Mayas, mixed marriages, marriages between Jews and non-Jews. But it's when it's big. Because there's this mixed population now, this is big. And of course, because the nations have spent centuries invading them, they don't much like the other nations. So yeah, to say an Assyrian or a Babylonian might be next to you in the great kingdom um, that God's going to bring, would, I think you're right, Henry, be very kind of shocking and challenging. Absolutely, yeah. Which also comes from Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And of course, when, when Jesus says that, he says that when he's clearing the temple, doesn't he? And the part of the temple he's in is the one bit that the Gentiles can come into. So he's saying the one bit where actually non-Jews might be able to come and draw near to the living God, you're busy making money there. You're blocking the way, literally, for them to come in. Yeah, so he applies this. Exactly. He's saying, no, this is meant to be the case. Great. Well, Dave? Not well. That was kind of here. Kind of, not quite cursed, but that some of them weren't able to come into what's called the assembly of the Lord, which is the uh, how do I describe it? The, uh, the the group of people who are closest to God and able to come before God in the temple and the ceremonies like that. Um, if you look so if, later on, if you look at those passages that are. On that first question, on that section, you'll see there, you know, the people can take part in activities, but they can't be a part of the assembly of God. Um, so it's, oh, it's odd, some of the nations can. The Egyptians and the Edomites can, because the Edomites are the brothers of the Israelites, and the Egyptians, I don't remember why they are, actually, but then it names other nations, and it says they can't come into the assembly of the Lord. But Isaiah's point is now any nation, whether Egyptian, whether Edomite, whether Ammonite, Ammonite whatever they might be, can all come in let's move on to the second one just so we don't lose too much time which is Isaiah 58 verses 1 to 12 in level b the kind of section where there's a big focus on uh, righteous living on words of encouragement to the faithful whereas a judgment on the uh, faithless where are you look at that this one what um what kind of thing is this passage talking about what kind of thing what's the theme of this passage Exactly. Yeah, they they were
1: oppressing their, their workers and they were quarrelling
0: yeah. and everything. He said the kind of fasting iron people is it? a change kind of, kind of lifestyle to live unselfishly. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant, yeah. So, so it's well, not learning you can't earn salvation you Yeah. Have to live the way the Absolutely, yeah. And and you can't just do the external trappings, which is what they're doing. They're saying we we're, we're fasting and they're saying, God, there's a problem, we're fasting, but the fasting isn't working. God says, yeah, well, you're fasting one minute, but then you're oppressing your work all the things you just said. This righteous living has to come in. Hmm. As you can see the combination of those two themes, the righteous living coming in with, um, with the salvation of God. And what about kind of enduring significance, theological principles, things we can apply today? Did you think about how it might help us today? Well, yeah.
1: well, we're less happy because we have salvation. Yeah, yeah, yes. wonderful, yes. wonderful. Yes. wonderful. Yeah. You know,
0: I mean, there are still Christians, aren't there, who try to earn salvation? Yeah. And we can't earn salvation, but we, we should live righteously. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of exactly the message of James. if You think of our sermon series recently, which is that actually it's not about earning, but actually it's the right outward expression of what God has done inwardly. And that it's not about doing things, um, kind of religious things, for, for the sake of it, for, uh, but whereas the, when the heart's still in the wrong place, actually it's about what the heart is doing and about what's. Um, behind that yeah so the easy I know the really simple examples of it's someone coming to church every week and looking really holy but then going and abusing their workers or whatever it might be just living completely opposed to God's in life so you can see how this is so relevant to us today as well great thank you um were your group there the next one's 59 and 63 is that you which is the divine warrior isn't it is that the divine warrior perfect perfect fit for your question then dave um do you want to give us a quick summary of what these passage what happened in these passages uh, the, yeah both
1: very similar passages.
0: yeah so you can see can't you, you can see that idea we've got one on the way up and one on the way down really very similar um and what if i ask you what does god's what does God do in these verses? How is he portrayed in these verses?
1: Portrayed yeah. as angry
0: at the injustice assumes the role of judge. Yeah. In Yeah. In, 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 in a sense, one step further than judge, isn't it? In a sense the judge just says what um, what's been done, a of the sentence. But this actually talks about God coming um, Exactly, bringing condemnation himself. And he kind of, particularly in 63, I mean, really vivid imagery. Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Bosra, uh, he who is splendid in apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? Uh, Verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like him who treads the winepress? And then God speaks, I've trod on the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Basically, God turns up covered in blood. And they said to him, God, why are you covered in blood? He said, there was no one else to do it. He said, oh, I had to go. I had to bring justice. He tramples <laughs> on the wicked. Well, you a questions. question. So who do we think this is? Well, did, you, did you discuss that? What would you say?
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, yeah. In a sense, he doesn't clarify who it he is. It's definitely God. Which person the Trinity is, he doesn't say. So in some ways it doesn't matter. But, so you're absolutely right, what I said earlier is that in Jesus' first coming, there's a big emphasis on the grace of God on the coming of salvation in Jesus. And there's that John verse, you know, Jesus didn't come to judge and condemn the world, but to save the world. But that doesn't mean that Jesus then doesn't act as judge. Because when we get, well, so Paul tells us that Jesus is the one who will judge all people. Then we'll hand the kingdom over to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the one who comes on the horse and such like, who enacts judgment. So in a sense, with the wider canonical picture. Does this talking about the future from now, or is it talking about the time? Oh, that's a really good question. If we take our leave from the book of Revelation, it's talking both about now, all of time, and the end of history. Because the book of Revelation isn't just about the end of history, it's about what God is doing. Yeah, I know, so I'm saying we can learn from Revelation which is that at all time, God is working, God is judging, God is pouring out his wrath. Romans 1 would say that, the, righteous, the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness is what Romans 1 says. It's a present tense thing, but then also there's a kind of mopping up of the whole deal at the end of history as well. So kind of both and in a sense. Um, and with a wider canonical picture of Revelation, this could be Jesus. Jesus is the one, I think, who has red garments in Revelation exactly the same. And so when John writes Revelation, when God brings that to him he's alluding to what Isaiah says of the, the figure in, in red bringing that kind of um, that judgement what about what are the theological principles what can we learn from this anything we can take from this and apply from this sorry what, what can we learn from this what are theological principles we can take we can learn we can apply God uh,
1: justice
0: really important one yeah we, and, he and justice yeah excellent the coming judgment of God calls us to repent, calls us to live God's way. And a really good point is, yeah, it's the justice of God. And in the modern West, we're not very good at celebrating the justice of God. You find time on time, in the Bible, Isaiah, Revelation, big examples, where there is worship of God because of his judgment of sinners, which for us in modern West, we feel very uncomfortable with. But actually the justice of God, if we were experiencing severe persecution of all sorts of things, we would totally understand why it's a wonderful thing that God is a just judge who will bring that in the end well done um, some hard passages but you did a good job with them Isaiah 65 is that you group in the middle here just summarise for us what, what happens in this uh, passage wonderful yeah a wonderful promise is, um, the way it's described yeah, it's a little bit different from what you get in
1: the
0: yeah Yeah.
1: Where there's no marriage, where there's no influence. You're only 100 years ago. Oh, all this stuff,
0: it talks about marriage. It talks about toil,
1: and it will be okay, all this stuff, which is a bit different, isn't
0: it? Yeah. So, yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Where's the time of marriage? I've not spotted that. Oh, well, that, yeah, that is, yeah. Yes? It's, it's a really, it's, it's like a nice. <laughs> it's like an echo of je- restoration, the Genesis. Is it the same thing where you're reducing... That's really interesting, yeah, yeah. It
1: really
0: is a restoration. Yeah, and that I think is a really important point, because you've hit exactly on the interesting and curious thing about this passage. talks about a new creation, uh, new heavens, new earth, but whereas you are in Revelation, we get new heavens, new earth, there's no death... Uh, there's none of that, but actually here we hear about young men who shall die a hundred years old The sinner a hundred years old should be there's young men dying There's sinners who are cursed and they're in the new creation Did you have any discussion about why it might be what's he get what's going on? How do we <laughs> <laughs> Yeah Right Okay straightforward this is what they may not it's a very, very so it could be different options before yes. moving on to the great promise of what is to come so you mean it's kind of a a threat that your experience in the new creation might not be as good no, if you're not so much a, as or a, warning. a warning okay
1: I'll try to press that imagine well, you said that you sat down and thinking
0: I tell these guys I tell good is bad, black is white, so yeah. When that the line, you Yeah, have to think about this thing. Yeah. What are
1: you going to say Alan? I thought it was interesting
0: there, you I like the part where it's the things come to come Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much the same, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Which is deliberately picking up on the language of Isaiah, the language of making new. Is Isaiah, the language of wiping away every tear. Here he says, uh, no more shall be heard the sound of weep and the cry of distress. And yet you have this kind of confusing matter of people die and there are sinners there. Is, uh-huh. is it
1: because um, you still talk about the new heaven and the new earth in terms of the here and now, but it,
0: they're not thinking of life after death? Still? So that's one, yeah, that's one option. So one way of reading this and reconciling this, and actually reconciling not just a revelation, but reconciling it with Isaiah. Isaiah 24 think you might remember um, it talks about the destruction of death that covering that's over all the world gets defeated death will be no more and yet here we have death in a new creation so it's not just a canonical issue or a revelation it's a book issue what about isaiah so yeah one solution you're absolutely right is to say this isn't talking about the new creation that comes after jesus return it's talking about something else so i mean this goes a can of worms but those people who believe in a earthly millennium which is in a thousand years when jesus rules Um, which may be mentioned in Revelation 19 would say it's that time some people would say that some people would say this is an interim period Um, I think the problem with that view is that he's or that rather John in Revelation so clearly uses this language so clearly wants to link what he says to this that John seems to have thought it was the same thing I think therefore the better solution is that what Isaiah is doing is using the things we know the things we understand to communicate things we pretty much can't understand. So when he talks about death, he says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old. Notice he's a hundred, yet he's still considered a young man. So he's just trying to communicate this idea of life on and on and on. It's not going to be literal death, but he's using what we understand to show how amazing something is. That even if you're a hundred, you'll be considered a young man. The sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed is difficult but probably means hypothetically if there are a sinner there there might be a hundred but there'd still be a curse i.e. there would be justice no one's going to escape justice even though in the wider biblical picture we know sinners won't be in um, the new creation i think that's the best way of reconciling with what isaiah says and what revelation says so yes yeah, so i think he is saying that i think the book definitely says it's eternal life. There's no death in the new creation. But he's using what we know, which is death, to explain what we can barely understand, which is the new creation. So, I mean, using something we understand to be an imperfect illustration to help us understand that thing coming. And what about, um, what is really, I love this bit, what about the serpent's food? Verse 25, um, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. Do you see any significance in that? Yeah, really, yeah, yeah almost the end of that passage the dust shall be the serpent's food he's talking about the serpent back from genesis 3 the one who started all the mess that this whole story is about and he's going to be left just eating dust yeah, yeah. it's mentioned genesis 3 he's told to say he's condemned to crawl on the dust forever now he's eating the dust it's this kind of wonderful thing of exactly as uh, you said helen this is restoration to what should have been before things went wrong in genesis Mm, yeah, 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 Romans 8, yeah.
1: That's so,
0: like, you know, creation has
1: been so effective.
0: Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, today,
1: you know, mm. and then it's yeah. going to be, yearning. Yeah, better. yeah. And to see Brilliant. that being restored to the intention, I think, is
0: Absolutely, yeah, really, really wonderful, thing. really, really exciting. Great, let me take you through the last two verses of Level D, so the last bit, which is the very final step before this very middle bit which doesn't actually quite fit with that whole pyramid structure. It's almost like there are two verses which just don't really fit with the rest of the pyramids. But even that probably alerts us to how important they are. So this is chapter 59, verses 20 and um, 21. Verse 20 tells us a redeemer is going to come to Zion. And he doesn't say anything more about him, really. He doesn't tell us a lot. But the way he says it seems to imply he's not saying God is going to work redemption. He's saying this individual figure... going to come he's probably reminding us of the figures he's talked about the Davidic king of 1 to 39 the servant figure in 40 to 55 and when he's about to tell us about the glorious um, uh, kind of kingdom that God is going to bring he doesn't talk much about an individual so I think what he's doing is he's reminding us that everything that he's about to talk about is going to happen through the individual that God has already talked about through this um, redeemer who's coming Um, Yeah, particularly because it's interesting in verse 16, it's before this, he's talked about God's own arm bringing him salvation. And if we think back to the servant songs, the suffering servant is identified as the arm of God. So there's a couple of hints here that God's going to do this wonderful work of salvation through a particular individual who's going to come. And it's significant as well, this individual, the redeemer, comes to those in Jacob who turn from transgression redeemer comes to the repentant which is yet further evidence that when isaiah has told us in the previous chapters to live in a certain way it's not about earning salvation because actually it's those who are repentant who this redeemer is coming to and then the final verse tells us that god uh, he speaks to his people he promises them a covenant an agreement between him and them he promises to put his spirit upon them which is kind of the key consistent promise of what god will do for his people in the new age and put his words in their mouths he's saying that all this stuff he's been telling them to do he's going to empower them to do the holy spirit comes to empower them to equip them to live it out and they haven't given those those us two little kind of warnings heads up he then jumps into that very middle section we've reached the pinnacle of the pyramid where in 60 to 62 he talks about this great salvation this great redemption that god is going to work and let me just zip you through i probably won't go through All of this just at a time, but let me give you a bit of an overview. Chapter 60 gives us this wonderful vision of Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, but also came to be symbolic of the Jerusalem to come, of the new creation, basically. And the vastness of that vision, the things he talks about, there's no sun, there's no moon, all the nations come. This tells us it's not just about an earthly city. This is about the new creation that's coming. And it opens by talking about a light. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Now, just in the chapters that have just passed, the Judahites have been told if they live God's way, then their light is going to break out. Their light will be like the dawn. But then a couple of chapters later, we're told they failed to do that. And actually, they're in darkness. Uh, Fifty-nine nine. we hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. But here's the promise that God is going to bring his light into that darkness. Where humans have failed yet again, God comes, God brings the light. And this light, he says, is going to be attractive. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Peoples from all different nations are going to come, are going to join the people of God. They're going to play their part in the city. They're going to worship alongside the Jews their own God. They're going to worship Yahweh. And this city is perfect. It's full of riches. The gates are always open. And in the ancient world, you had big walls, you had gates. To keep your enemies out, you keep your gates closed to stop malicious people getting in. Well, here the gates are open. It doesn't matter who comes in; it's safe. It's a perfect place. Anyone can be coming in, and all violence, devastation, uh, devastation, destruction have ended. And as the nations come, they bring their treasures, and God provides treasures. He says, um, instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. Instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. It's like he's saying, you'll get a better version of absolutely everything. And then the pinnacle of it, the most wonderful bit, is that God himself will once again dwell with humans. Isaiah 16:19. the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you a light, but the Lord's will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. That's the first of the kind of three insights he gives us into this age to come. And then the very centre is Isaiah 61, where we get this anointed individual speaking. But the big question is, who is the individual? He talks about having been anointed. The Spirit of God is upon him. It's anointed him, equipped him, uh, kind of marked him out, I guess. And he's called to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to comfort those who mourn. All of these things could have, probably do have spiritual significance. He's talking about spiritual poverty, about captivity in sin, about mourning over one's own sin, mourning over the situation of God's people, of God's place, but also on a secondary level kind of thing, they kind of have physical significance as well. Because with the coming of God's kingdom, there's a reversal sort of all the brokenness in that has come in, um, uh, through the fall. So actually all the brokenness, whether that be poverty, whether that be captivity, broken hearts, all those things get fixed, get put right when God comes and brings his kingdom. And the figure's been called to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of the vengeance of our God. As I've said, one of the things we see in these chapters is that God's work necessarily involves two hearts, favour and salvation, but also vengeance, also retribution against evil. But it's really interesting that here in several other places in these chapters, There's that distinction, it's a day of vengeance, but it's a year of favour. It's almost like he's saying, God will act in vengeance against evil, but that will be accomplished in a short time. That's what God, in a sense, doesn't want to do, but will have to do, but actually his favour will last far longer. The day will be over, and then the year will come into reality. There's this kind of imbalance, actually. God's heart is to save, God's heart is to show favour, but he also has to be judged, uh, has to be just. That will be done, in a sense, in the day, when the glorious year of his favour comes. And then he speaks more about mourning in verse 3. Again, it's probably spiritual. We talking about mourning over the loss of Zion, over the loss of everything that the nation had. But this figure is going to transform the mourning. And the big question we get here is, who is this person who's speaking? He doesn't identify himself, doesn't give us a name, doesn't give us anything much about himself, just appears and starts speaking. And some people say, well, because he's anointed with the spirit, he links to the king who's mentioned in chapters 1 to 39. So places like chapter 11, when we get a talk of a messianic king who comes and brings transformation. Some people say, well, things like the spirit and other various elements about this figure link him to the servant figure of chapters 40 to 55. But other people say, actually, this figure proclaims, he announces things. It's not so clear that he actually makes them happen himself. Some people say maybe he's more of a, a prophetic, a kind of messenger figure rather than actually the one who does it himself. And in a sense, that's kind of all we can say. It's not told to us here. But what's interesting, of course, is when Jesus comes, Jesus imbues all these things. Jesus comes as the Davidic king, not as they expected, but comes as the Davidic king, like of Isaiah 11. Jesus comes as the servant, the one who lives out Israel's vision, uh, vocation, who suffers in their place. And Jesus comes as the messenger. He reads in Luke 4 this very passage in this synagogue saying that in his day it's being fulfilled. And of course it's not at all, uh, they could be different people in Isaiah's mind, but the wonderful thing about Jesus is he links them together. So I think in Isaiah's mind this probably is actually a different figure. But Jesus comes, Jesus is yes and amen of all of God's promises. And Jesus comes and lives this out, does this work. In the next little section, God talks about the transformation of the fortunes of his people, very similar to the previous um, section. The city will be restored. Nations, again, are going to come, be with the people of God. God's people receive a double portion in place of their shame. Shame replaced with honour, and not just honour, but a double portion of honour. God brings justice upon sinners, and all will see that God has blessed his offspring. And all of this kind of glorious truth and glorious promises causes someone, probably Isaiah or a person he's thinking of, to kind of burst out in this song of praise. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with with the robe of righteousness. And time and time again in Isaiah, we get these little songs that burst out, the stuff that Isaiah says is so wonderful that he or whoever he's thinking of can't stop themselves from kind of overflowing in worship. And then the last of these chapters, Isaiah 62, again is thinking of Zion, thinking of the city, but not just an earthly place, this wonderful place where God will dwell with his people for all of eternity. Uh, Isaiah refuses to stop announcing that glory is coming for Zion. And again, he says that the nations are going to see it. The nations look in, they see the righteousness, the glory of God. This is a wonderful statement that God's people will be like a crown. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The thing of great kind of value, the thing of great worth. And the identity of God's people and this city has been transformed. The names are totally transformed. Previously, the city, the people were called forsaken. Previously, they were called desolate. But now they're called my delight is in her. Now your land will be called married. A complete and utter reversal of what has been going on. And he uses the wonderful picture of marriage to kind of sum this up. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride show so your God rejoice over you. A wonderful picture, the rejoicing of God's heart over his people. And as God starts speaking, he calls people to give to him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. He's literally inviting us to give him no rest, to keep praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth earth is in heaven. That's basically exactly what Jesus teaches us to do. He's saying actually we're to wrestle in prayer for this. And that is an ongoing now. hmm yeah yeah I think absolutely yeah yeah because yeah. so I think these chapters are addressed to us as well as to um, the time it's the post-servant time yeah so he's calling us just as Jesus does to pray for the kingdom just as Jesus teaches us to pray let your kingdom come that your will be done on earth as in heaven and all that that means that so they're kind of Very small, concentrated phrases, which then mean a huge amount of God's justice and righteousness and salvation and peace and all these wonderful things, wholeness, well-being, coming and breaking in. And God promises that what's happened before is never going to happen again. So previously, when they're taken to exile, all their treasures, all their material resources get carted off, get stolen, basically, by foreign nations. He promises that will never happen again, but they will enjoy what is theirs and they'll worship God. They'll dwell with him. And the final verses are this kind of call to come, to come into the city. Let me find them. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. This is God himself. Your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. It's us. His recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Perhaps the most significant thing there is that the people, we, get called the holy people. If you remember, the whole of Isaiah, the whole of the problem we've been thinking about through Isaiah is there's this holy God, the holy, holy, holy one, whom Isaiah sees in chapter 6. The one whom he sees and he realizes he is utterly unholy, he is utterly uh, unable to come near to him. He's a man of unclean lips. From a people of unclean lips and the whole thing all the way through becomes how can unholy people now come before a holy god and then we go through the work of the servant we come to this point where god says now we get called the holy ones that big problem has been solved just as the uh, coal came from the altar the place of god's atonement and made isaiah pure, the servant has come from god's place to us has made atonement makes us holy which again is what we find in the New Testament. Paul tells us we're not sinners. Our identity, our title is not sinners anymore. We're saints, which means holy ones. He's saying exactly what Isaiah says. We now are called the holy people, the holy ones of God. So those chapters are kind of the, uh, the pinnacle, the high point of what Isaiah has to say to us in this section. But of course, being this pyramid, this chiasc structure, we've walked up, we've got to the top, but actually before we reach the end of the book, we're going to walk back down. He's going to say other things to us, which is why I want us to finish, actually, by looking at the last little section of these chapters, the thing that actually Isaiah wants us to read last, the challenge he wants to bring before us. And in many ways, they're very similar to the message of the whole book, this message of God bringing judgment, but also bringing glorious salvation by grace. But also, actually, they're really interesting. There are some surprising elements that come in them. So he starts in verse 15. He starts talking about how he will judge and destroy the wicked. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword of all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. And the next verse explains to us that the reason this judgment comes is that people have chosen to partake in the worship of other gods. He talks about different things which are symbolic of those acts, those acts Um, going into gardens sacred gardens you worship other gods, Uh, eating pig's flesh, all the uh, the abomination and mice, all of these things are linked to pagan worship. Judgment comes because people have failed to worship the creator and instead have worshiped the created. But then verse 18 transitions to a message of hope and says that God's going to gather people from every nationality, every ethnic background, from every language, every language group are going to come in and they'll see God's glory. Just as was proclaimed in chapter 40, that all flesh see the glory of God, there's this wonderful gathering in, this beholding of God. And then verses 19 to 20 are where it's really interesting. For the first time, probably, in the Old Testament, we get talk of mission in the way that we would think of it, and we would recognise it. Most of Isaiah is talked about God drawing people, people are drawn to God, drawn to his place. In verses 19 to 20, God talks about sending out his people the farthest corners of the earth the four or five places mentioned are kind of the outposts of the known world of the time he says they're going to go out and they're going to proclaim about god and they're going to draw people back to where um back to where god is this is basically the international mission of the church It's exactly what the church is doing now exactly what jesus commissions us to do which is to go to the ends of the earth in order to draw people to god there's this kind of reversal of the way it's no longer people being uh want a better way of putting it, something drawn in, is now God's people going out to invite people to come in. And what's even more amazing is that as God's people do this, they go out to the nations, they invite them to join. People from the nations not only get to come and join the people of God, not only get to come and be involved in what is going on in the people of God, they actually get to serve as priests and Levites. They get to experience some of those privileges which only a very small select group of men, only the one tribe within Israel, get to enjoy. He's saying that everyone gets welcomed in and everyone gets the best of the best. And the final promises that God gives to his new people, he says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. For new moon to new moon, for Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. What's interesting here, if you think back to the book of Genesis, the promise to Abraham was that he would be the father of a great nation, i.e. he'd have many offspring, and that his name would be made great. Well, now God promises that at the conclusion of his great work in salvation history, the offspring of Abraham and his name, those two things, will be established and will endure forever. They will endure as long as the new heavens, the new earth, that means forever. He has fulfilled all those promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12. It's the vision of all peoples coming to worship at the mountain of the Lord, uh, Isaiah 2, kind of where we started several weeks ago. That mountain which is higher than all the other mountains where all peoples come to worship God, that has come into reality. And we'll continue, he says, new moon to new noon, i.e. month by month, Sabbath to Sabbath, week to week, people will come, will worship God. And that's probably where we would expect the book to end. That's probably where we'd like the book to end, to be honest. It's a good note to end on. And yet, God adds one more thing. The final verse, still talking about his redeemed, he says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who've rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. The continual worship that's just been talked about gets uh, contrasted with continual punishment of the wicked. And God says that the redeemed will go out and look upon them. The idea is not that the redeemed go out and gloat that they've been rescued and these people haven't or anything like that. The idea is that the redeemed go out and this is evidence of God's justice. Again, that thing I said earlier, there's a sense in the Bible of the goodness of God's justice. And as they see what's going on, they recognise God's justice, that God has destroyed evil, but also they recognise the greatness of God's mercy to them. There is a biblical theme, I think, of when you see the judgement of God upon people, you realise the extent of the mercy of God upon those of us, because none of us deserve any of it. Actually, we see the wonderful mercy of it. So Isaiah doesn't just leave us with a comfortable promise of how God will work. This wonderful, uh, work, wonderfully work everything out. The promise is there. The promise is fully true. The promise is there to encourage us, but also there's the call to the right response. That's so why Isaiah, just those last few verses, is kind of ending the book on a huge note of challenge. He's telling us that at the end of the day, there are two eternal states. At the end of the day, the two eternal states are based on two different responses to God. And what he's basically saying to us is we've got to make our decision. Which path are we going to take? Which of those responses are we going to make? Which of those destinations are we going to end up in? That's the message of Isaiah. Now, if you can bear to stay for 15 more minutes, I'd love to show you a video which is going to do everything I've done in the last four weeks in 15 minutes. Uh, Dave, I've got a question first. That's right. What would you say to Job's witnesses who don't believe in hell and that they've been to be I would first discuss them why they think that. And then I'll talk to them about if they, if they, I don't know why they think that. So if they say they think it's been added into the Bible, I would talk about manuscripts and how there's no evidence of it ever existing without that. Does that make sense? It's all put
1: on the old
0: scrolls. Yeah, so if they were saying to me, all those things were added into the Bible later, then I'd be saying, well, there are no texts where those parts are taken out. You know, our, our oldest copies of the Old Testament all include those things. If it's true that something's added later, you expect to find some versions without it, and some versions with it. If almost all the versions have it, then actually it seems to have been original. Does that make sense? No, they have different translation, different versions, all kind of sorts. I don't know much about it. So my approach would be to find out more from them, and then to address it from that, basically. Okay. No, I'll have a look inside. I don't know their views on that. I will explore it. I would love if you are up for it to show this video. Now, your uh, kind of A3 sheet in your notes is a poster from these wonderful people called The Bible Project. And they have produced these wonderful um, video summaries of every book of the Bible, which are designed to give you the overview to then help you when you read it, to help you kind of get the detail. And um, it's a combination of this guy who's a professor in America and this amazing illustrator who then puts them together. And so the video I'm about to play you, which is about 15 minutes long, builds up this picture and gives you in 15 minutes, in a really, I think, very well done uh, way, the message of Isaiah. Their approach is pretty much the same as mine. I think they think there's more than one author, so you can ignore that bit. Um, uh, And there's one or two other bits where I'd have minor disagreements, but it's very good. Let me play this. And uh, don't be scared about not being able to take it all in. But I think seeing the whole in one go is a really good thing to do.
1: In Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period. And he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leader. That their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost. That God was going to use the great empires of Assyria, the But that announcement was combined with the message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises. That he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom. Remember his 2 Samuel 7. That he would lead Israel in obedience to all the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai. Remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel this day. The book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 to 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event all of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. In chapters 40 to 66, pick up that promise of hope and develops it. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope. He ends, as Isaiah, accusing the leaders <laughs> of idolatry, and justice. And God says he's going to judge the city by sending nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new truth populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God. And Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom will come, when all the nations will come to the and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders this strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment. But because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening. people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down by a tree and left like a stump in the feet. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what the rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land. But there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send, after this destruction, a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent violence. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message judgment, and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next section of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire. Babylon, a nation even more destructive than the area. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon, Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations, and that leads the next with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is the archetype of rebellious humanity and is described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem, Assyria, and, and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin. And one day is going to be replaced by the new Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations There's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who were waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and peace and The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. First, we find a bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against he knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, the king of Jews. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance, and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings 24-25 and that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1-39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass, like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1-39 are all about. The book of the prophet Isaiah. In the first video, we explored chapters 1-39, which was Isaiah's message of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. He accused Israel's leaders of rebellion against God and said that through Assyria and then Babylon, Israel's kingdom would come crashing down And so chapter 39 concluded with Isaiah predicting Jerusalem's fall to Babylon in the exile. And a hundred years after Isaiah, it all sadly came to pass. But Isaiah's greater hope was for a new, purified Jerusalem, where God's kingdom would be restored through the future messianic king, and all nations would come together in peace. And so chapters 40 and following explore this great hope. The first main section, chapters 40 to 48, opened with an announcement of hope and comfort for Israel. The people are told that the Babylonian exile is over and that Israel's sin has been dealt with and a new era is beginning. So they should all return home to Jerusalem where God himself will bring his kingdom and all nations to see his glory. Now, let's stop for a moment because this opening announcement raises a big question. That is, who is saying all of this? Whose voice are we hearing in these words? The perspective of the prophet in these chapters is that of somebody who's living after the exile. In other words, in the time period described by Ezra, but Isaiah died 150 years before any of that. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, there are many who think that it's still Isaiah in his own day speaking, but that he's been prophetically transported, so to speak, 200 years into the future, and that he's speaking to future generations as if the exile However, the book of Isaiah itself gives us the clues that something else is probably going on. In chapters 8 and 29 and 30, we're told that after Isaiah was rejected by Israel's leaders, that he wrote and sealed up in a scroll all of his messages of judgment and hope, and that he passed on to his disciples as a witness for days to come. Eventually, Isaiah died, waiting for God to vindicate his words. Now remember, Chapters 1 to 39 is designed to show us that Isaiah's predictions of judgment were fulfilled in the exile. He's a true prophet. And so after exile is over, Isaiah's disciples, who have treasured his words for so long, open up the scroll and begin applying his words of hope to their own So on this view, the book of Isaiah consists of that first collection of Isaiah's words, as well as the writings of his prophetic disciples, that God uses to extend Isaiah's message of hope to future generations. Whichever view you end up taking, everybody agrees that these chapters are announcing that the future hope has come, that God is fulfilling Isaiah's prophetic promises. And so the prophet hopes that Israel will respond by becoming God's servant. That is, after experiencing God's justice and mercy through history, that they will now begin to share with the nations who God truly is. But that's not what's happening. Israel, instead of bearing witness to the nations, is actually and even accusing God. They say, the Lord doesn't pay attention to our trouble. In fact, he's ignoring our cause. The Babylonian exile, understandably, caused Israel to lose faith in their God. I mean, maybe he's not that powerful. Maybe the gods of Babylon are way greater than our God. And so the rest of these chapters, 41 to 47, are set up like a trial scene. God is responding to these doubts and accusations with the following arguments. He says first that the exile of Babylon was not divine Rather, it was divinely orchestrated as a judgment for Israel's sin. And second, it was for Israel's sake that God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon, so they could come back home, fulfilling Isaiah's words. So the right conclusion that Israel should draw is that their God is the King of History, not the idols of the nations. In the fall of Babylon the rise of the Persian King Cyrus, Israel should see God's hand at work. And so becomes his servant, telling the nations who he is. But by the end of the trial, chapter forty-eight, we find that Israel is still as rebellious and hard-hearted as their ancestors. And so God disqualifies them as his servant. But God still is on a mission to bless the nations. And so the prophet says God's going to do a new thing to solve this problem, which moves into the next section, forty-nine to fifty-five. We're introduced to a figure who's called God's servant, who's going to fulfill God's mission and do what is. God gives this servant the title Israel and sends this person on a mission to, first of all, restore the people of Israel back to their God, but second, to become God's light to the nations. And we're told that this servant is empowered by God's Spirit to announce good news and to bring God's kingdom over all the nations. It sounds just like the Messianic King from chapters 9 and 11. But then we learn the surprising way of how the servant will bring God's kingdom. He's going to be rejected and beaten and ultimately killed by his own people. In reality, as he's being accused and sentenced to death, he's dying on behalf of the sin of his own people. The prophet says that the servant's death is a sacrifice of atonement for the people's evil and rebellion. And then, after his death, all of a sudden, the servant is just again. And we hear that by his death, he provided a way to make people righteous. That is, to put them in a right relationship. And so this section concludes by describing two ways people can respond to the servant. Some will respond with humility, turn from their sins and accept what God's servant did on their behalf. These people are called the servants and also the seed. Remember the Holy See from chapter six. These are the ones who will experience the blessing of the messianic king. But there are others who are called simply the wicked. And they reject both the servant and his servants. Which brings us to the final section book, 56 to 66, where the servants inherit God's kingdom. These chapters are beautifully designed as a symmetry that brings together all of the themes. the
0: At the very center
1: are three beautiful poems that describe how the Spirit empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor, and he reaffirms all of the promises of hope from earlier in the book. The new Jerusalem, inhabited by God's servants, will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations and surrounding these poems are two long prayers of repentance, where the servants confess Israel's sin, and they grieve over all of the evil they see in the world around them. And so they ask God to forgive them, and that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Now on each side, these prayers are collections of war poems that contrast the destiny of the servants with that of the wicked who persecute them. God says he's going to bring his justice on all who pollute his good world with their evil and he's going to remove them from his city forever. But the servants, those who are humble before God, and who repent and own their evil, they are forgiven, and they will inherit the new Jerusalem, which, we discover, is an image for an entirely renewed creation, where death and suffering are gone forever. And this brings us to the very outer frame of this part of the world. In this renewed world of God's kingdom, people from all nations are invited, come join the servants of God's covenant family so that everyone can know their creator and redeemer. And so the book of Isaiah ends with a very grand vision of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Through the suffering servant king, God creates a covenant family of all nations who are awaiting the hope of God's justice and bringing a renewed creation, where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is heaven. And that's a very powerful
0: simple i really <laughs> i do think sometimes seeing it in miniature like that even though there'll be lots of details you won't pick up on actually you get the flow of it you see in 66 chapters it's a huge thing when you kind of start working it but it's just wonderfully orchestrated by god it's the most wonderful uh, uh, exposition of the gospel thank you so much guys for joining us this week so i really hope you enjoyed it Do remember not to go to Pelham, do please tell anyone who's uh, not here tonight. And uh, I'll see you all soon.